0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. We're continuing our, our study in the Old Testament Minor Prophets. We're going to be in Obadiah today, so you can find the book of Obadiah as I just kind of talk through a little bit by way of introduction. Remember, the minor prophets are called minor prophets not because they're unimportant in their contents, but because they're short in their length. So it's not that the minor prophets are not important, but rather it's that they're just short. In fact, Obadiah is the shortest one, just 21 verses, shortest book of the Old Testament. So we're going to read that together in a moment. But as I was uh, studying this week, I was struck by the fact that you have three books in a row, Amos and Obadiah and Jonah, and all three of the books speak of God's judgment that's coming, in particular upon um, pagan nations. And so Israel, as they would hear their prophets speak, as they heard, remember when we looked at Amos, they, would, they heard Amos prophesying, northern Israel Amos was prophesying to them, and he was saying that all of those nations around northern Israel were going to be judged. And, and you can imagine they were thinking, Yeah, go, God. Nuke them, wipe them out. They're our enemies. And then God says, Oh no, I've reserved the greatest judgment for you, Israel. And the rest of the book of Amos was this indictment and condemnation on the nation of Israel for their lack of holiness, their lack of godliness, their wickedness and rebellion. And so they were basically, God was telling Israel, you're no different than the nations around you. Even though I called you to be different, you're no different. And so I'm going to bring judgment on everyone. Here in the book of Obadiah, it's actually a Judah's southern neighbor, Edom. And the whole book is written to Edom to condemn them for their wickedness. And saying that God is king, Yahweh is king, and his kingdom is coming, and judgment is coming. And so you have in in Amos, you have this sense of, yeah, the nations are going to be punished, but God's people are going to be punished too because of their wickedness. In the book of Obadiah, it's just that the nations are going to be punished, one in particular, Edom. But then in Jonah, the very next book, you have this message where Jonah is sent to tell Nineveh, you're going to be judged unless you repent. But the, the, the primary driving force of the book of Jonah is not simply judgment, but rather the mercy and steadfast love of God, not only to His own people, but even to the nation's. And so there's this progression and there's this, this fullness of teaching in Amos and Obadiah and Jonah that, that gives us a perspective as the people of God that yes, we should desire righteousness. We read the book of Revelation and we say, How long, O Lord, until you come and judge the wicked nations? The saints who are martyred, who are under the throne in the book of Revelation, are crying out, How long? And when the Lord comes, when the Lord Jesus comes, the nations cry out, hide us from the wrath of God and the Lamb. And so there is a sense in which we should long for Christ to come and judge our enemies, like the book of Obadiah says. There's also a sense in which we're to go make disciples of all the nations, Those nations that are enemies with God, we are to bring the gospel to them and make enemies our friends and our brothers and our sisters, children of God through the sharing of the gospel. It's the book of Jonah. And I think also there's this sense, even here in Obadiah, that we need to understand that when we want the judgment of the nations, we shouldn't be filled with pride and think that we don't deserve the same thing. It's only by the grace of God and His mercy that we are spared. It's only in Christ that judgment has been averted. You see, because God was going to judge sin, and the glorious news of the Gospel is that my sin was judged at the cross. Colossians 2 says the handwriting of requirements, the IOUs that were against me because of the debt I accrued, because of the sin I committed and the rebellion I committed towards God, that's been removed and taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's the good news of the Gospel. See, and this is what the minor prophets are all about. God is going to be glorified when He brings salvation through judgment that's what they're all about. And so just as we think about this, I really think the book of Obadiah, it really can be applied to us very easily and very quickly. All the other prophets speak to Old Testament believers, the nation of Israel, those who were believing the promises of God regarding the Messiah, and even those in the nation who weren't believing but who were called God's people. But Obadiah was proclaiming a vision from the sovereign God of the universe to a pagan nation that had no theology, it had no place for the knowledge of God in their lives, it had made no claim to knowing God. In other words, Obadiah was speaking to a society much like our own. It's much more common, especially here in California. I mean, when I travel back to Louisville and I talk to pastors there, they still live in the Bible Belt, and so there's this lip service to God. And they say the hardest thing about their ministry is that people give lip service and say they're a Christian because their grandfather went to the church. But they have no heart for God. But you see out here we we many people there's there's no knowledge of God. There's no claim to knowing God. There's no theology. There's there's no bad theology. It's just no theology. And so we have this opportunity to to speak the gospel into our culture to say there is a God in the universe who created you, who has rights over you. And you can choose to live in your own kingdom and see how that turns out, or you can bow your knee to Jesus as Lord and live in His kingdom forever. Let's read this together. Obadiah. I could say chapter 1, but there's only one chapter. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock... In your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, who will bring me to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars from there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day the strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Those at the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Wow, what a word. That is judgment. And what we see here, I've titled the the, the sermon, To Be a Friend of the World is to Be an Enemy of God. And I pull that right out of James 4.4. To be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Of God. And here in the first 16 verses of Obadiah, we see that Edom is the enemy of God. God says to Edom that he is their enemy and they are his enemy. And we see in the first four verses, the primary reason they were God's enemy is that they were proud. Verses 1 to 4. Now, Obadiah. His name means servant or worshiper of Yahweh. Aved means servant or worshiper, and Obadiah, Yah, is the shortened form of Yahweh. So you have this name. That's all we know about him. We don't know when he lived. We don't know what time of the kingdom this was when he was proclaiming this message to Edom. All we know is that he is a servant of Yahweh. It may not even be his real name. It may be a title, the servant of Yahweh, that's proclaiming this message to Edom. But what he says to Edom is that Edom is a proud nation. In fact, in verse 2, God promises to make him small among the nations. Do you see that in verse 2? Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. I think that suggests they regarded themselves as somewhat great among the nations. They were proud in their hearts. In fact, verse 3 makes it clear. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me to the ground? Now, Edom, it was important for two reasons. One, Edom was on the great trade route between Syria and Egypt, and so it made their people wealthy. And secondly, they were a rocky fortress nation south of Judah. They were on sandstone heights, rising up to 5,000 feet above sea level. And if you've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, the city Petra where the... the, the, the um, palace is carved into the rock and they have all of the pathways they call Sikhs that lead to it that's Edom that's where modern-day Jordan in modern-day Jordan this is where Edom was was in that area and Petra later in history was one of their great cities and so this Edom sat as a, a mighty bulwark in these mountains and they looked down literally upon all the people on the heights And I think their geography symbolized their hearts. High and hard, certain and proud. And God says, I'm going to make you small among the nations. You think you're great? The pride of your heart has deceived you, verse 3. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me to the ground? It said in those pathways, those Sikhs that led over to their cities, 12 men could hold off an army because they're so narrow, and you couldn't get up on top. And so they thought, nobody can come take us over and conquer us. Who's going to bring us down? And God says, I will. They were proud. I mean, I think that's immediately applicable, isn't it? First thing we see here, it doesn't matter how strong or prosperous or successful you and I feel, how great we think we are in our own strength, God is the one who made us. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. He gives and He takes away. Scripture says, Proverbs, God is a prose to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You want God to be against you? Be proud. Isn't that the desire of our hearts is to lift ourselves up and be proud? I don't even think I have to convince you that we have a hard time with pride. We can take pride in all sorts of things. It doesn't just have to be wealth or success or strength of arm like Edom. It could be simply I take pride in my family that they're not like that family over there. I take pride in how successful I've been as a father. And then God, I think, has a laugh and has your kids show their own pride and go their own way and show you how helpless you are as a dad or a mother. We can take pride in in our appearance. I mean, that's what gymnasiums are for. Gym memberships, at least in January. January. We take pride in how we look. There's magazines that sell it all over the place. Pride is a cancer. And God here says the reason He is an enemy of Edom is because they are proud. Verse 4, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Wow their pride deluded them. Now the sources of their pride we see first in verses 3 and 4, it's their location. They're up on a high hill. It's, it's probably gorgeous and beautiful, the view from there. Not only that, their location gave them security. God says in verse 4, I will bring you down. In verses 5 and 6, their wealth was a source of their pride. He, he says that your treasuries, verse 6, are going to be sought out and you're going to be pillaged. Though you're wealthy because you're on this trade route and you have all this money, it's going to be taken from you. Their allies, in verse 7, they had these great allies they thought were their friends, and God says your allies are going to deceive you. They had wisdom, in verse 8, they had learning and knowledge God says, your wise men are going to be destroyed, verse 8. Verse 9, they had armies and they had defenses, and God says, your mighty men are going to be dismayed and they're going to be cut off by slaughter. So all of their pride, their location, their wealth, their allies, their wisdom, and their armies, all of it's going to be taken by the Lord. You see, these, this location led to this, these impregnable defenses. Their wealth led them to have this security that they didn't need anybody around them. And as we're going to see, they could stand aloof when the other nations conquered Judah. They had strong allies, these other nations, thinking they would always be on their side. They had exceptional wisdom. In fact, one of Job's counselors was from Edom, from Teman. And they had mighty men who could hold those valley floors. And they're going to be dismayed and slaughtered. And I think just in applying this to ourselves, God would say to us, don't be proud and lift it up. You're going to reap what you sow. God says he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And think about this. This. Humility is the way of God Himself. This is exemplified in our Lord Jesus Christ. The incarnation is the greatest act of humility. Philippians 2 says, though he was equal to God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, and so he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross, this humiliating Death of a criminal and a curse. He did this for our sakes. He displayed humility. Think about the upper room the night he was betrayed as he had the Passover meal with his disciples. What did he do? He washed their feet. He said, this is what true greatness in the kingdom of God is. If you want to be a great, you be a servant of all. And if we want to pursue greatness, we need to pursue humility. If we want to practice greatness, we need to get rid of pride in our hearts. He went to the cross. He was not guilty. And He went to the cross. Isaiah 53 says, like a lamb is silent before His shearers, so He uttered not a word. He knew He was being betrayed. You remember the the garden when He said, Father, If it be your will, take this cup from me, but yet not what I will, but what you will. He humbled himself. Humility is the way of Christ. And I think sometimes we deceive ourselves in our pride thinking that we're so great a Christian because we've done so many things for Christ or we've given so much or we've raised kids that are so godly or, or we know the Bible so well and none of that matters in the final estimate if our hearts are lifted up with pride. Greatness is being a servant of all and being humble and contrite. I remember... I, I will never forget it. When I was going into ministry, it's been a little while now, 16 years ago, and I was going into ministry, and my dad said to me over and over again as I was going up to Napa, he said, Ryan, stay humble and teachable. Stay humble and stay teachable. If you don't do anything else in your ministry, just stay humble and teachable, and God will use you. But you want to be useless in your ministry, be filled with pride. Get puffed up that you think you're so smart and know so much of the Bible. And he was right. Humility is the way of Christ. This must be the way for all Christians. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that He will exalt us in due time. John Stott said this, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, Pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. he's right. Edom was an enemy of God because they were proud. And secondly, they were an enemy of God, verses 5 to 16, because they opposed God's people. They opposed God's people. Now, verses 5, 6, and 7, and 8, even into 9 there, 5 to 9, God is declaring what he's going to do to eat them. They thought they were secure because they had all these things. They were proud in these things and God was going to take them away. Verse 5, he said, Edom, if, if there were thieves that came into you and came into your house and stole by night, they wouldn't steal everything. You wouldn't have been totally destroyed. And if there were grape uh, gatherers that came into your fields and stole grapes and gathered grapes, they wouldn't take them all. He said, but that's not how you've been. In other words, you, as you watched, he's going to say in verses 10 to 16, as you watched the nations plunder Judah, you haven't even shown that smallest mercy in your wickedness. When you stole, you stole everything. You left nothing behind. You completely wiped them out. You opposed God's people. You were utterly merciless in the treatment of Judah. Judah. If you've ever been the victim of robbery, you've probably felt that those just isn't it amazing how the thoughts of vulnerability and then anger and violation. I mean, and, and that's I've only experienced it in small things. You know, my wallet stolen out of my car, or or something stolen while my car is parked, or not I've never been robbed to the degree of like my house being robbed. But here Edom had stolen. The implication is. They stole from Judah, and they were merciless about it. Remember what Christ said to to Saul on the road to Damascus when he was trying to stamp out Christianity? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Christ so closely identifies with his people that he refers to them as himself, he tells Paul. Paul. And God demonstrates the similar kind of identification with His people in the book of Obadiah. Actions against Judah are actions against God Himself. And so He tells them in verse 8, Your cleverness is not going to save you. And in verse 9, Your strength is not going to save you. I'm coming. And their violence in verse 10, it wasn't even against strangers You couldn't even give them that, that it was some sort of xenophobia and strangers that they hated and so they they killed them because they were enemies. No, this was against brothers. Brothers. And God says He's not going to temporarily destroy them. As He temporarily sent the Israelites into exile, He would destroy them forever. This is how God cares about His people and how they're treated. This is why, when the saints under the throne are crying out, How long, O Lord, until you come? He says, Just a little while, but when he comes, all the nations hide in the rocks and the caves and the cliffs and say, Hide us from the wrath of God and the Lamb, for the day of their wrath has come, and it's terrible. So he says in verses 11 to 14, This is what you've done. Verse 11, You stood aloof. You stood aloof. What does he mean by that? On the day that all of your allies went and plundered Judah, you stood back and watched. You complied with the violence of others. Verse 12, you rejoiced in the day of their ruin. You gloated over your brother. So not only did you stand back aloof, but then you mocked them and rejoiced over it and gloried in it. And in verse 13, you joined with them. You entered the gate of my people. You gloated over their disaster. You looted his wealth. And then in verse 14, there was total disregard for life. He says in verse 14, Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Think about what he's saying here. Edom waited at the crossroads for those who fled the destruction from the allies. And when they found survivors, they took them and handed them over to their killers. The invaders wouldn't have known the local roads like the Edomites did. And what they did was they guided the invaders right to the miserable people who were fleeing. Merciless. And and keep in mind, this isn't a fairy tale, this really happened. A real attack, a real siege, a real fall. People, real people running from Jerusalem screaming. And it was the very roads of Edom after an exhausting flight and and running away from these enemies that they thought was their only hope for survival that their cousins, the Edomites, waited and ambushed them and captured them and gave them back to their conquerors. And I think it was Babylon. And I think they were hoping to get in good with Babylon. Babylon. But I don't know that for sure, but that's what I suspect. And so God says in verse 15, He's going to bring justice. The day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord, we saw it in Joel in great detail. Two phases of this day of the Lord, right? A nighttime phase, as it were, and a daytime phase, a wrath phase and a blessing phase. And we saw in Joel, it dealt with the nighttime phase. And in Amos, it dealt with the nighttime phase. God's judgment coming upon the world for their wickedness and the way they treated His people. And here, the day of the Lord is near. And this is why I think it especially applies to us and not just Edom. Because he says in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. So he's speaking to Edom, but he says, guess what? This applies to every nation as well. As you have done, it shall be done to you. As you've done, it shall be done to you. This should be encouraging for Christians. It should be encouraging for you and I. This promise of divine justice. I know sometimes it sounds harsh, but really it should encourage us because it should encourage us first when we personally face unjust suffering... Think about our Syrian brothers and sisters who are fleeing persecution. They're being slaughtered. They're being handed over. Women are being raped. Children are being sold into slavery. And they're fleeing and they have no place to go. The day of the Lord is a comfort to them. That there's a day of justice coming. It should be a comfort when we hear of Christian brothers and sisters around the world facing unjust suffering like our Syrian brothers and sisters and saying, the day of the Lord is coming. He's going to make everything right. And we're going to have justice. And there won't be any more daughters sold into prostitution and no more sons sold into slavery. There won't be airplanes flown into skyscrapers. The day of the Lord is coming and Christ is going to reign in righteousness and justice and perfect peace because He's the Prince of Peace. It's also a promise that should be encouraging because it means this world, the way it is, won't last forever. It won't. It also should mean we expect the world will hate us and oppose us because it hated and opposed Jesus. Just like the reason Edom hated and opposed Judah was because it hated and opposed God. And if you complain about the suffering, the persecution you might face, who did you think you were following? Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you also. Peter and James say, don't be surprised when you face trials. Count it a blessing. Count it all joy when you face these manifold trials. Why? Why? Because this is how our Savior lived on this earth. And if we want to be identified with Him, we're going to be like Him in His sufferings. Paul said, Oh, that I may know Him. And the fellowship of His sufferings in Philippians. What a crazy thought, Paul. That you would want to fellowship, have this communion with Christ in the midst of suffering. That's exactly as it's going to be. And so Edom in verse 15 represents all of the enemies of God's people in all generations against God, and the destruction of these enemies is certain. God is opposed to such enemies. No mountain is high enough. No fortress is strong enough. No military force is large enough. No hiding place is dark enough to secure such an enemy from the judgment of God. That's marked ever on this passage. Jesus said, In the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is why we don't take justice into our own hands. Vengeance is the Lord's, he will repay. And so we say, Lord, come, do your work, bring justice, but we don't try to be the ones that are the deliverers of the justice. We entrust ourselves to God and we preach the gospel and hope that some of God's enemies become His friends because we were enemies of God and we became His friends. In fact, verses 17 to 21, the rest of the book talks about the fact that God's children are His friends. Edom is the great enemy of God pictured here, which is in verse 15 seen as all the nations, but God's children are His friends. Friends. You remember what Jesus said about the cities that wouldn't receive His disciples? He said, if anyone won't welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more tolerable for them than Sodom and Gomorrah, than for them on the day of judgment. In other words, not only Obadiah teaches not only is God the judge of all who are proud and the judge of all those who oppose His people, he teaches that God is a friend to His people. He cares for His people. Look at verse 17. He delivers. In Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. He makes holy, verse 17. And it shall be holy. He gives security and blessing. Verses 19 and 20. They're gonna, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Israel's going to possess Edom. He goes on to say, All of these possessions, all of the possessions of the enemy are going to be delivered over to God's people. He gives security and blessing. And amid God's words of judgment, He speaks hope for His people. God's people would be restored when the wicked receive justice, God's glory and salvation through judgment. It's as if God were promising to bring them back to life from the dead. And isn't this what the gospel says? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the renewal that began when Christ came the first time and will be completed when He comes the second time. And so He says and. In verse 18 notice he says not only the house of Jacob shall be a fire but the house of Joseph shall be a flame. And if if Obadiah is speaking to Edom after Israel's been taken into captivity this was a great promise because this was fulfilled in one sense when Judah came back from exile in Babylon back to rebuild Jerusalem but the northern kingdom was never restored. The northern people were scattered, and we know that, that this began to be completed when Christ came the first time, because all of those in His resurrected kingdom include those of God's people, the Jews, but also the Gentiles, but I think He's going to complete it when He comes back again and restore both Jacob and Joseph but think about the blessings we have in Christ deliverance, the promise of an inheritance, justice, God's word, his has his said, his steadfast love. And as God's people in his church, we've already begun to experience the blessings of the new covenant in Christ. And then in verse 21, he says, All these saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, these deliverers. But he says this ultimately, the kingdom shall be Yahweh's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. <laughs> In other words, Yahweh, the Lord, is king over all the nations. And he shows it by the way he treated both Edom and Judah. In fact, I would argue that God's kingship is the message of this book. He has the authority and the right to judge Edom. Even though they don't know him as king, he is king. He created them, and He has rights over them. And He's the King of Israel. Ultimately, He's the Lord, the one who rules and will deliver His people. And so the kingdom will be the Lord's. The Lord is King over all the nations. Listen to Mark Dever again, asking about this book. Why prophesy to unbelievers, to people God would judge, who were proud, unjust, and hardened, who were God's enemies who didn't believe? because God will declare the truth about Himself and what rebellion brings even to His enemies. Whatever the circumstances, we must remember that God is the great King, the Creator and Judge of the universe, and the Lord of history. He's the one who will bring retribution upon His enemies. He's the one who will bring friendship to sinners if only they would draw near to Him in Christ. Turn to Isaiah 63. I was struck by this. One of the commentators Mention this passage in connection with Obadiah. Isaiah is about in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 63. This prophecy is fulfilled when Christ returns at his second coming. We know that from the book of Revelation. But listen to what it says Who is this who comes from Edom? Is crimson garments from Basra, which was a main city in Edom. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled. There was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me, and I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is the Lord Jesus speaking, I believe. God the Son. We see that from Revelation 19, Revelation 11. This is the day of His wrath. And isn't it fascinating that Isaiah ties this prophecy that he had just walked through Edom and Basra, what Obadiah had promised as a picture of his judgment. You see, this one who was coming, this one who would save was promised from the beginning he would be a lion of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. He would be a son of David, 2 Samuel 7. He would be a son of Mary in Matthew and in Luke. He's the one who came who is the Messiah, who is the deliverer, who came. And in Revelation 11 and Revelation 19, it is the day of His wrath that is coming. He's the one who's going to judge and save and deliver His people. And He is our Savior and our Lord. So was Edom destroyed? Yes. Edom was first invaded by the Arabs, and then it suffered wave after wave of invasion until the nation finally disappeared. Today in Jordan, all there is there on those mountain heights are small military outposts. And were the Israelites restored? Partially. But a fuller restoration Obadiah prophesied about began when Christ came, declared the kingdom of God had become, ushered many Jews and non-Jews into God's reign, and it's going to be completed at the return of Christ. So I I think the question, by way of application, is are you an enemy or a friend of God? Are you an enemy or a friend of God? Ephesians 2 says that apart from Christ, we are by nature objects of God's wrath. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, then no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. James 4, 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Turn over to 2 Peter 3. We'll close with this. I had Nathan read it earlier. 2 Peter 3, verses 9 and 10. Actually, start at 8. Do not overlook this fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. And the promise he's talking about in the context is that he's going to judge the world by fire, verse 7. The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So what kind of people ought we to be, verse 11? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Verse 13, according to His promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you at due time. This is how we ought to live in light of this. It is so easy for us to be numbed by the things of this world. To just sort of be sedated by the, the wealth and the prosperity and the peace that we have in America. The day of the Lord is coming, and if you're an enemy of God, I would beg you, as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled to God. Bow your knee to Jesus. Don't remain His enemy. He is patient, not desiring that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Come to repentance. Turn from your sin and give your life to Christ. Teenagers who've grown up in this church, give your life to Christ. Father, I ask that You would do this work. These are ultimate realities, Father. You have revealed it. And it's so easy for us to sit back and get distracted by television and Internet and smartphones and and the wealth and the prosperity we have in this world and not deal with the realities of who You are as King and Lord, who You are as Creator and Master, Oh, Father, we want to be people who are humble, contrite, and tremble at your word. We want to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with you, Father. We want to practice greatness in the kingdom. We want to be servants of all. Remove pride far from us. It's a cancer to the soul. And we don't want you to be opposed to us, Father. May we live in light of Christ's coming. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.